Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, May the 10th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much every podcasting service you desire, or even on iHeartRadio. So check us out over there. You want to send me a note? Mike Silva at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Happy Mother's Day, everybody, for those who uh, celebrate in the audience. It's been, uh, I guess, two weeks since the last time we were together, and I guess, you know, someone had asked why you didn't have a show last week. Well, a couple of reasons. One, I thought the Doc Gooden episode was really good, give you a couple of weeks, and with people not as engaged, I think, as they normally are on social media, and the podcast numbers actually indicate that some people are you know, taking a step back a little bit from baseball from, you know, just the, you know, eight weeks ago, just from the late spring training days. So I thought I'd let you have a, a you know, a little bit more of the, the Doc Gooden podcast. Plus, I was trying to think about what would be the next show. And I want to make it something of quality because I see a lot of what's going on out there. I see that, you know, they have the uh, the cookie club over there over at SNY and you have some debates going on, you know, who's better of you know, this Met team, that Met team, a lot of speculation about, you know, the season, which to me, and I'll, I'll keep it brief before I get to what, you know, today's podcast is about. If all the things you're hearing, which is a lot of speculation and rumor from probably mainly agents, some front office executive scouts, and none of it is from the top. If all the things you're hearing is what is going to constitute how we're going to have a season, which could include crazy divisions, uh, you know, maybe playing in spring training parks, maybe having a very truncated season. Now they're talking about uh, no high fives. I mean, guys, you know, at some point, once you're going to bring the game back, if you bring the game back, when you bring the game back, if you're going to do all these little things like put players in the stands six feet apart just to show the public health officials that you're being responsible. It's all window dressing stuff. None of it matters. Once you're in a clubhouse, once you're traveling, once you're on the baseball field, what are you going to do? You're going to to have the bases six, you know, the the runner on first is going to have to be six feet from the first baseman. I mean, come on, let's get real here, guys. You know, slide, there's sweat. You're you're playing a game, you're playing a baseball game. And if you're not going to play it the way it should be played, then clearly you're not ready for that. The country's not ready for that. The public health system's not ready for that. And there shouldn't be a season. And we're pretty much in that last stage right now of whether or not there's going to be a season. If the season, in my opinion, does not start between July 1st and July 15th, the latest July 15th, I see no reason for you to even contemplate having any kind of season. Any kind of season. 
There's no reason for it at that point because if you can't get 81 games in, and I think you could get 81 games in from July 15th onward. You probably have to push it into deep October, you know, maybe the first or second week of November. Um, I don't want to get a lot of crazy experimentation. There's a lot of things that have been thrown out there over the course of the last few weeks, and every scenario falls right where I didn't want this season to become, which was jamming a round peg into a square hole, trying to do something for the sake of doing it. I understand the money at stake. I know the players want to get paid. I know the owners, some of them are bleeding money. There's going to be huge financial ramifications for some teams when the league reopens up. I think you're going to see some really interesting times during free agency. I think you're going to see some teams really cutting payroll. I think the Mets, if they don't get sold could be one of those teams that could be really in a difficult situation with uh, some key free agents coming up after this season who still will be free agents because they're going to get their service time. So basically to me, if you can't have as regular a season as possible, with the only exception being the two things that I would be okay with is a truncated schedule, 81 games, let's say, or more. And number two, I'm okay with them playing if they have to as long as they could still play the normal structure, National League, American League, maybe you don't do interleague play, but you have the regular divisions, I'm okay with them playing in neutral sites or in some kind of, you know, village, let's say, because you have to make some concessions. But other than those two concessions, I'm not really interested in the other stuff. And I know you're hearing things now about, and there's probably no fans in the stands, that's another concession, which I think should be an easy concession to make. I mean, it's going to be painful financially for the teams, but it's an easy concession to make. But you know, I'll throw that one in there. But everything else has to stay normal. The game has to be normal. The dugouts have to be normal. You know, you want to outlaw spitting. What are you going to do? You're going to throw the guy out of the game if he spits? I mean, really. Let's get real here, guys. Let's get real. So you see in a lot, no, no high fives. What are you going to throw him out of the game? You're going to call it a strike or a ball, depending if it's a, a pitcher or a hitter. You're going to suspend him. You're going to find them. We're at this point. Really? We're really at this point. Well, that's what happens, like I said on Twitter. That's what happens when you when you hand your country over to public health officials and give them too much say in how things go. you got to take advice from groups, expertise groups. You take advice from them. You certainly take them seriously, but they should not go front and center and dictate every single move we make when it comes to reopening and different businesses and so forth. So that's, that's my two cents on everything. Probably not something that'll get more than a 50% approval rating. There should not be a season unless you could have as close to normal of a structure of what I call divisions, the game on the field, the dugouts, the interaction, all those things. You want to cut down the schedule? Fine. You don't want to have fans? Fine. You want to have a village or neutral sites? Fine. Those are things that you have to, during these times, be flexible on. But by no means do I think anything else uh, should uh, you know, certainly be compromised. And let's face it, the more you wait, you're also putting players' health at risk from the standpoint of them getting injured. Forget about the virus and all that. Tommy John surgery, hamstrings. I mean, there could be some serious injuries, for, especially for pitchers, uh, because you're trying to jam a season in, and they're going to try to get ready, and, and, and you just don't need to lose a player next year or for multiple years or destroy their career uh, just to jam a season in during a time where there's much more important things to worry about, especially where there's a large percentage of the economy still shut down. Sports should be that last thing that comes. Baseball should be that last thing that comes when all is said and done. Okay, move on to the main event. I decided to do a throwback today, a great interview. It's a very old interview. It's about 13 years old. It's uh, from former Met Terry Leach, and uh, he wrote a book about 13 years ago. Things happened for a reason. It was a basically a memoir of his career. And the reason I picked this interview is because I, I went back, I listened to it. It was one of my favorite interviews. It really, and Terry was a great guest. I mean, really personable, nice guy, and good memory and was willing to share a lot of details about his journey being an older rookie, a guy that had to basically try out, wasn't really a, a hot shot prospect, had to really work his way through the minor leagues, got some opportunities, had to really fight to stay on the roster, had some good luck and bad luck along the way, and, and carved out, uh, obviously not a, a long career, but anybody who could spend some time in the big leagues and, and play for uh, a pennant-winning team uh, in Minnesota, and then obviously was part of a, a few good teams with the Mets, uh, deserves a look, and, and he's a Met that holds... Uh, I think a special place in the team history because of his performance in 1987 uh, when he started the year off, what, 10-0? and 0, And then he uh, he really kept the Mets that first half of the season when their pitching was just decimated. 
in the race against the St. Louis Cardinals. So let's take a quick break. When we return, you'll hear from Terry Leach. You'll hear Terry talk about his career. Hear which Hall of Famer or who should be in the Hall of Fame thought was he was one of the toughest pitchers he faced and some of the other great stories throughout his career with the Mets and the Twins and what have you. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Mets, however, did find a savior in Terry Leach, who came out of the bullpen to excel as a starter. Ground ball to second, and that should do it. What a remarkable achievement for Terry Leach as he wins his seventh of the year. Leach went on to win his first ten games, not only establishing a Met record, but also keeping the team within shouting range of the Cardinals. have with me now former Mets pitcher Terry Leach and Terry as Mets fans know pitched for the Mets at various points um, between 1981 and 1989 he also won a World Series with the Minnesota Twins in 1991 and uh, recently I had the privilege of reading his book Things Happen for a Reason the true story of an itinerant life in baseball Terry welcome to the show hey thank you I appreciate it I guess I'll start off with the book and I know it was written a few years ago uh, I believe 2000 but um, you know, what inspired you to talk about your story as a major league pitcher? Well, it, it really was not my idea. Um, there was a a publisher out in California, um, Richard Grossinger, and he uh, was a big baseball fan and used to every year pick a minor league a minor league player to follow just to see what kind of career and what kind of year they had. Well, one year it just happened to be me that he picked to follow, and um, in in that year or either the next year, I made it to the big leagues, and he continued to follow the story. And I met him while I was out in California playing against the Giants one time. He was in the clubhouse, and he told me that he was interested in doing a book on my story because it was a little bit different. It wasn't like I was a superstar or anything. I had to, I didn't get drafted. I had to go to tryout camps, and I was always the the um, bottom of the barrel, basically for getting uh, picked on any of the teams, but um, but I did make it up, so he was interested in, in, in trying to write it up. So um, at that time, I was still playing with the Mets, like like I said, when I met him. So what I did, I told I said, well, unless my career is over now, I said, unless you know something I don't, let's just wait till you know, I'm through playing, and then we'll talk about doing this. I, I really couldn't understand why he would want to do it, but uh, Richard's pretty... Um, you know, set in his ways, he wanted to do it, and so finally one day we we, we sat down and, and did a book. Yeah, I found it interesting. I'm reading the book, and you know, I remember you watching you play as a side armor, and uh, I come to find out that you were this hard throwing right handed pitcher, and then one day, you know, your arm's starting to hurt you a little bit, and you're trying to get into the major league. Somebody pulls you over and says, "Hey, throw side arm," and, and the rest is history. You know, talk a little bit about that because it must have been tough learning how to throw side arm after throwing hard in ninety plus all those years. Well, it was, you know, I was, I was used to being able to go out and overpowering people and, and, you know, I, I had good movement on the ball. I had good speed. I was, you know, I could intimidate people with just a fastball. In fact, even when I was in college, I very seldom threw a curveball. I would pitch maybe a, a nine inning game and only throw three or four breaking balls. Uh, everything was just fastball. But, as I as I went on and I hurt my arm, I injured my elbow and my shoulder, and it all had to heal up. And when it wouldn't heal quite the right, I learned how to pitch after that. Uh, before that, I was a thrower. I I'll, I just tried to overpower people. I didn't worry about a whole lot. I just went after them. Either it worked or it didn't work. As I became a sidearm pitcher, and my speeds were only in the 80s, that I I realized well you got to be better. You have to hit better location. You can't walk people. You you have to be a better pitcher at this speed. So that's, that was the major turnover to me. And I, I've got to say, I believe I was a much better pitcher throwing my sidearm at 80 miles an hour than I was when I was overhand at, 80, at 93 or 94. Very interesting. Um, you know, you get, obviously you go to a tryout, uh, you get signed by the Atlanta Braves. And, and then I'm listening to your, reading your stories here, uh, early years in the minors. You had some uh, interesting times, specifically the friends you made, the camaraderie. Um, am I wrong in saying that although they were very difficult, because it didn't sound like it was glamorous all the time, you seem to look back at your early pro career with some fondness? Oh, I loved it. it. It was a great time. It was a big adventure. Like I said, I didn't think I was really supposed to be there. I didn't think I was really supposed to play college baseball. 
but as it went on and I got to move up and I got to meet these people and I I was really very blessed that the, the guys I was I was with just great guys we you know we still keep in touch with some of them and I enjoyed it so much like you said it was not glamorous or easy and we weren't making much money but we sure had a lot of fun together and in fact when I was writing this book and I'm I'm working with Richard on doing the book and we're doing these stories and telling about stuff he had to start asking me, he said, now, Terry, you're, you're telling me an awful lot about the minor leagues. He says, but, I'm, you know, we want to get up here into the major leagues, the stories there. I said, well, actually, I have more memories, kind of, of the minor leagues because we were always together. We didn't have much money. We had to invent our own fun and do things together. And that's where, you know, I, it seems like I met most of the characters that uh, that you hear about in baseball that are the funny, the, the wild people that just do the, the crazy things. And, and they're just a lot of fun to be around. This might be hard, but I figured I'd ask you it. Um, any chance you could describe a typical day, uh, briefly, of a minor league ball player's uh, life? Maybe, I guess, obviously, back when you played. Back when I, you know what? I can do it back when I can. Nowadays, I have no idea what <laughs> they would do. Uh, my days, we, uh, I'd probably get up around 9 or 10 o'clock. Uh, we'd hang around the house for a while, get cleaned up. We had to watch our soap operas before we could go anywhere. Had to go, had to watch all General Hospital and uh, all the ABC ones. That's what I was into right then. Then about one o'clock, we would go eat lunch and probably walk around at a mall or something because it was usually pretty hot wherever we were, uh, especially like down in, in South Carolina or, or in, in um, Savannah, Georgia. And so we'd walk around a mall, uh, take it easy. We'd go back. Um, Home uh, about three or three thirty in the afternoon, about three o'clock. Maybe watch uh, All in the Family with Archie Bunker. We always like to watch that. And then uh, about three thirty, four o'clock, about around in that time, we'd start heading to the ballpark, where we'd get in. We'd have to get any treatment she had to get. Then uh, getting dressed out on the field, uh, all the you know pregame stuff, batting practices, infields, everything we did. Then play the game, and then about 11 o'clock at night, you know, we'd be through, and we'd go out. We'd um, try to, we'd, we'd all go out somewhere and socialize a little bit. One of the things that struck me, and I guess people in in the real world look at ball players, and you know, they obviously they see all the money they make, and you know, it's, it's like, wow, look, you know, they got it made. But you know, I'm reading about your life, you know, especially early in your career, and even throughout your major leagues, is that nothing was ever guaranteed with you. So someone in the real world, at least even though they could get fired, for the most part they know they're going to have a job tomorrow and next year and probably for 25 years. But for you that wasn't the case. I mean, how do you handle the stress like that, you know, daily? For I mean, you played for 15, 16 years in the major leagues. Well, that that's right. Um, and I, I did make a lot of money, though. I made a whole lot of money. My first year I made $350 a month, and I got paid for two months' worth. So <laughs> I made $700 my first year. Um, and... Uh, I don't know. I never did have a, I had one guaranteed contract the total time I played. And that was nice. It was, you know, it, it did let me relax a little bit. But I was just thinking about it on the way home from church here a little while ago. I never worried about it. Um, I, I remember a lot of my friends while we were at spring training. Uh, you know there's going to be a lot of cuts and a lot of people let go as soon as, uh, as, as spring training's coming to the end and they have to decide who's going to what, what teams. Well, they would uh, sit there and start adding up their notes, who's doing what, when, and where, and how many people they got going here, and how many new ones they need there. I never did that. All I did was go out, I pitched the best I could. If that wasn't good enough, then I didn't need to be there anyway. So I would just try to do my best and try to be impressive out there on the field and let them know that I could play the game. So, honestly, the stress of, of that didn't bother me a whole lot. I never knew anything different. That's the only way I ever had it until much later on in my career, um, like in 19, I think it was 89 or 90, might have been 1990 when I had the guaranteed contract, but um, I just didn't worry about it. I was out there to play baseball and do the best I could, and that that's just all I did. Another uh, interesting scenario is you played winter ball in a few different countries, and um you know, you've heard some really bad stories from other major leaguers about playing in different countries. And when I saw that you played in Colombia, especially in the early 80s, I'm going to think, one, it can't be the safest country in the world, and then two, 
it must have been a real interesting experience. Um, why don't you share a little bit specifically about your time playing in Colombia and, and Winter Bowl in general? Sure. That, that, that was my first time to ever go out of the country. Um, I had just signed on with the Mets that year uh, as, as after I'd been released from the Braves, and I went and finished the last month of the season with the Mets. And I'd already gone home to Selma, Alabama, and I was working at the company my dad worked at. It was a, 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 a cotton company, uh, a cotton broker, and I'm making, you know, like four bucks an hour. And, um, you know, I, I've been there for a couple of weeks, and I'm working away, and I get a call from the Mets, and they want me to go down to Barranquilla, Colombia, to play baseball. A, I had no idea where Barranquilla was, and uh, I had never played winter ball, and I don't speak Spanish. I didn't know what this was going to be like, but they were going to pay me a little bit, a lot more than I was going to be making in uh, Selma. So I packed up my bags, and about two days later, I, w- I was down there, and it was quite a cultural shock. Um now, I don't think any of it was bad. I had a great time, uh, but it was different, and you just have to learn to adapt to what's going on. Um, just think you have to get used to maybe the power going off a good bit. Um, they were concerned about drinking the water. I, however, I never, ever got sick. Um, anything, what else? Driving was an experience. Just um, the, the road, sometimes the road from the capital city to Santiago, uh, well, that was in, in Colombia, in uh, Dominican Republic, actually. But the roads, they, they, they're not the best in the world, so it was a little difficult getting around. Um, I really did enjoy it. I, I liked it. You get away, you don't have any TV or anything because, you, you know, there's no English-speaking TV station. So we had uh, VCRs. Well, not back then, actually. It was, um, I, uh, what was the first ones to come out? They were... Um, Probably like a variation It's some kind of recorder, right? Yeah, it was a recorder When they first started to come out And that's yeah. all we could have We didn't even have many of those We played Monopoly at night <laughs> We would play as many as four games Complete games of Monopoly Every night This is after we got home from playing ball We saw the sunrise come up a lot too Coming over the, the mountains That was pretty neat But it was a great experience for me Just to to see how so many other people live, and it made me where I always said, I will never say I'm bored again, <laughs> because I, I always know when I'm living here, I can always get in my car and go somewhere, I can catch a bus, I can do something, get out and go do something, and, and it, was a, it was a very good experience for me. I met some very nice people. Um, one experience I did have while I was playing in the Dominican Republic, I used to take my car to some of the games, and we were heading back one night after a game coming across the island. And I had uh, one other American and one of the native coaches. No, I had two Americans and a, and a native coach with me. And the coach spoke English also. And we're driving, coming back. And they had a habit of not wanting to dim their lights at night. They kept them on bright. And you're just going down a little two-lane road. And I'm going along, and I'm squinting. I, you know, this car's coming at me. I'm squinting. I can't hardly see anything. Just about the time that car goes by, I look up, and there's a horse standing right in my lane. So I'm in this little bitty economy car, and I hit a horse going uh, about 45, 50 miles an hour. Flipped the horse over my car, broke our windshield, glass all through us, totaled the car, killed the horse. We have to go into a police station because you had to had to check it all out. I thought I was going to be in jail for sure for killing somebody's horse. But it ends up that whoever let the horse out onto the road is the one that was going to be in trouble. But these are just little things that went on. After, after that, a couple of guys that... Um, Played there, you know. They decided that was a little too much for them. They packed up and went home. Yeah. And I said, then that's no reason to go home. <laughs> you just got to be careful here. <laughs> that's true. It's, you know, like I said, most most ball players haven't shared greatest experiences in winter ball. But um, you know, you work through the the Braves and Mets system. You finally get your shot in 1981. And you know, I've interviewed a few former ball players, and I always like to get their perspective their first day when they finally make it. So you come in relief, Wrigley Field. You know, talk a little bit about your experience, you know, your time getting to the ballpark. My, and then, my first day? Yeah, oh, wow. your first what day and then your first game, obviously. You know. Well, to set that up, I was when they told me I was coming up, I was in, you know, playing for Tidewater, and we were on the last day of a 10-day road trip, and we were in Charleston, West Virginia, and uh, they woke me up at 7 o'clock in the morning and said that they wanted me to meet the team in Chicago. Well, of course, I'm just ecstatic. I'm happy as can be. Only problem was I had no clean clothes. 
I didn't have any suits or anything because we were on a bus at the time. And uh, at the time, I had a perm in my hair, and it was blown out, and it looked pretty bad, so I was wearing a straw hat, a cowboy hat, to uh, kind of cover it up a little bit. So anyway, I pack up all my gear, and I jump on the bus that morning, go out to the airport. Uh, we fly out of Charleston. I end up in Chicago. I land. I gather all my gear up. Um, I find a taxi cab. I'm jumping it. We're ready. I tell them I'm going to Wrigley Field. I'm meeting the Mets and all. You know, I'm all perked up and everything. Well, about halfway there on the interstate, um, we had a blowout uh, in the cab, so we had to pull over. And so I'm out there helping the caddy fix the flat tire so I can get on over to the to the game. I want nothing was going to stop me from getting there. And so I helped the caddy change the tire on the side of the interstate. People whizzing by. I'm filthy dirty now. I jump back in the cab. We get to the ballpark. Well, I'm running late. All the ballplayers already in. The crowd's coming in. All the gates are locked except for where you pay your ticket. I'm trying to get in. The uh, ticket taker will not let me in for anything. Doesn't know who I am. I finally got some word in some way or another uh, that I was out there. And they came. They finally let me into the game. So I got to go and get dressed. And I, I, I had just enough time to get dressed and get out to the to dugout just before the game started. And it was quite a shock when I got into the clubhouse. Uh, the one at Wrigley was still made out of wood, and it's elevated. It's not down in the ground like most uh, clubhouses. It's elevated up in, in, in the uh, stadium. And it, it was quite a, you know, it was, it was very kind of historical. Like it was like what baseball used to be, and I loved it. I thought it was great. And I go in and sit down in my locker. And I'm right next to Dave Kingman. And, you know, I, you know, didn't really know him and he's a veteran and, you know, big guy. And it was a little shock to me. I'm not saying too much, but, you know, they were nice to me. They gave him a uniform. Um, Joe Torrey was the manager at the time. And I was already told, uh, Ron Gardenhire, who was up there at the time, said, well, you better tie it on. Said, um, when they pull you up, they, they're, they're expecting to use you right then. They, he doesn't mess around. I said, okay. So uh, after all this day and not much sleep and carrying on, I go on out and sit. But he did. He let me have that day off. He let me just kind of rest. since I didn't even get out to the game until about second or third inning, I don't think. But uh, the next day, he did put me in. Oh, I'll tell you what really made me feel like I was in the big leagues. It's when we went to the hotel after the first game. I had not been there yet. And we go to a big, I think it was a Hyatt uh, Regency, downtown Chicago, uh, Arthur Richmond was the um, traveling secretary. He pulled me over and said, Leach, it's your first day in the big leagues. I want to set you up right. He put me in my own room on about the 32nd floor overlooking Chicago. And, man, I thought I was just in heaven. I had to call everybody at home just to tell them what the weather was like in Chicago and what it looked like. Because uh, most of them, nobody really knew I was in the big leagues at that time. I had not even had time to call anybody and tell anybody. So everybody was real happy to hear about that. Then the next day I did get to go out and pitch. Um, I came in relief for Ed Lynch, who was, uh, had a win going on. He had a one-run lead at the time. And I came in, and unfortunately I got the first out. Then um, it seems like me, I, I uh, gave up a home run to Mike Lum. And in fact, I might have had two outs. And Mike Lum hit a home run to tie the game up. Uh, then I got my first strikeout right after that, and that ended my inning. Um, it also ended my uh, stint pitching because my at-bat came up that next inning. But we did come from behind and win, but unfortunately Ed Lynch didn't get his win, and that would have been his first of his major league career. So I know every time I see Ed, he always happens to mention that to me, so I know it's on his mind. Could have been one more win for him. Uh, but it was, a, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. Every day I went to the ballpark. I would love just to sit and look and smell the grass and the hot dogs cooking and hear the music. It was always a pleasure to be at the ballpark. I never, ever dreaded going there. It was a, it was a happy day every day. Now, in 1982, you pitch um, probably one of the better games in Mets history, maybe the best, and I'm sure this is the one that you would consider the best game you've ever pitched. It's a 10-inning one-hitter versus the Phillies in October of 85, and for those who are listening the current Mets fans, you know, this is a, a team with Hall of Famers like Pete Rose, uh, Mike Schmidt. And, uh, you know, just, I know you talk about it in the book, but walk us through briefly uh, your experience that day in, in that particular game. 
All right. Um, actually, um, Rick Ombi was supposed to pitch that game. And I can't remember if it was the night before or the, or a day and a half before. They, they told me that Rick's got a bad finger. He's got the uh, blister on it. He can't pitch. We're going to let you pitch this game. And this was the last series of the year. Uh, it was on October 1st. It was, it was the first game in Philly for the last series of the year. So I kind of had a feeling that they were putting me out there so that they could basically get rid of me. If I did bad, then they could release me and it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't matter. But um, I drove, uh, I got permission to drive from New York to Philadelphia in my, in my own car because right after the Philadelphia series, I was heading back home and it would just cut off a lot of driving. So I, I drove myself and I was relaxed and enjo- enjoying the ride. And uh, going to the ballpark that night and everything's good, nothing out of the ordinary. I go to warm up and Ron Reynolds is my catcher at that time and he's been my catcher in the minor leagues for a couple, three years also. So he was very familiar with me. And we're throwing and warming up and I'm, I feel pretty good and things seem like they're happening pretty good. And I go out to pitch the game and after the game, I'm, I'm just going to skip to after, just, I was talking to Ron again after the game and he told me, he said, I didn't want to tell you during your warm-up, but he said, you had some of the best stuff you've ever had while you were warming up with me. And he said, I wasn't about to tell you anything about it. And I said, well, I'm glad you didn't because I went out and I don't like to feel overconfident. I don't think that's a good thing. I think you should feel happy and excited, but I don't think you should be overly confident. I think you should want to go out there and be on edge a little bit. And and I started pitching, and I was strolling through. All of a sudden, I'd gone one, two, three innings with uh, no hits and fourth. And then into the fifth inning, had a couple of outs. And then I, I did give up a what I call a cheap triple. Yeah, <laughs> triples are always cheap. No, it was, you know, ball in the gap. and Turf and, triple. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I had only needed one more out, and the, the uh, pitcher was coming up to hit next at bat, which was John Denny, who the next year won the Cy Young Award, and I ended up striking him out, so I was able to, actually I had to get two outs, I got a pop-up, and then a strikeout, so to end that inning, so it, it, it saved the shutout, but I did lose the one, the no-hitter, but then that was only the fifth inning, I ended up pitching the sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth, they were debating on taking me out, I mean, I was some kind of wore out, I had not pitched that much trip. <laughs> Ever that I'd had to go past the, the ninth inning, and I had not had a start in like two and a half years, I think it was. I think maybe four or five innings in relief was the longest stint that I had had. But I'm out there, and they let me go back out for the tenth inning, and I'm literally having to go down and take a rest on my knees. I mean, just put my hands on my knees and breathe once in a while. And I walked one hitter, and um, the, the George Bamberger came out to talk to me, and he said he wanted to leave me in. He said, you know, I'm going to give you a little more time here. He said, but, you know, if, if somebody else gets on, you're going to have to come out. I said, that's fine. I understand. So I just said, if I throw a pitch, I'm going to make sure it's a strike. I can't. I don't have the energy to throw anything that's just close and to be called a ball. i got to go right at them. So I just started pitching right to the guys and, and hoping that the movement and everything that I was putting in there was going to be enough. Surely enough, we ended up being able to finish that game out the last um, that last out I got was a weak little line drive to my second baseman, which was Brian Giles at that time. He he made a nice little catch of it, and I used to get really excited. I don't know if anybody ever remembered, but I used to jump up and down and scream about almost every out. But uh, I thought that when I saw that out being made, I was just really going to be able to jump and scream and go nuts. I was so tired, I barely got off the ground. I don't know if I got more than about an inch and a half up a little whoopee, and that was about it. And, I, and by that time, all the other guys were meeting me out at the mound, congratulating me on the game, um, you know, for getting that out. out. It was it was a great experience. It was um, it was unbelievable. I couldn't believe that I was able to pitch that well against, like you said, the quality hitters of Mike Schmidt and, and um, Pete Rose, and they had a lot of other players on that team that could really, really, really hit. When you look back now, and you 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 say that. Uh, in the book, that Pete Rose lists you as one of the top five toughest pitchers he faced, and he's a guy that spanned, you know, three decades, 60s, 70s, and then into the 80s. I mean, that's got to make you feel pretty good. That did. I mean, that was uh, a serious honor for me. Um, I'd, I'd always looked up to Pete because 
Pete was a player, I felt, kind of like me. He, I don't know that he had the most talent anywhere in the world. He wasn't the fastest. He wasn't the strongest. He couldn't throw the best. But he put it all together, and he gave it his hardest shot every day. He hustled every day. He just tried to do his best. And that he developed into being a very, very fine baseball player. And then to have someone that had been there for that long and was that well known to speak that highly of me, I was very honored about it. It's amazing, too, because then I'm reading, and after the 82 season, you pitch that great game. Um, but then you find yourself, you're bouncing around, you're, you're released by the, you're traded by the Mets, you're released by the Cubs, you find your way back to the Mets. I mean, at any point during that span of time between, I guess, 82 and, and 85, when you finally started to solidify yourself in the Mets organization, did you think about maybe this is not going to happen, quitting, or anything like that? Well, I thought maybe it wasn't going to happen, but I never thought about quitting. Um, that's one thing I try to tell the kids today that I meet. They, I, I hear them talking about, well, I'm going to give it two or three years. If I don't make it, I'm going to quit. Well, if you quit, you never got a chance. You don't know exactly how long it's going to take. Uh, if you want to play the game, you need to stick with it. But I, I, I had my doubts. You know, there were times that you, when you're getting to be the age that I was up around there, when you're getting traded or released or whatever, you had doubts that anybody was going to have faith in you. Fortunately for me, when I got released uh, for the second time by the Braves and the Mets picked me up again, the people with the Mets were very, very good to me. They knew that, they said, if you're not hurt, we know you'll be fine. And John Schaefer was the manager at the time, and Al Jackson was the pitching coach. And 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 Al told me, he said, I don't even know what they're worried about, man. You're fine. Let's go. So it was very encouraging to get back with them, and then they all they did was let me pitch. They didn't let me just go out for an inning here or an out or two here. They let me go out and, and acquire some innings and build up. And that was the way I was the best. And unfortunately, just not everybody plays the game like that. The more I pitched, the better I did. Uh, fortunately, Davey Johnson realized that. And Davey used to throw me out there uh, just about as often as he could. And and I always appreciated it. That always kept me uh, lined up and focused on what my job was, and I could I could keep a better rhythm. And I, I thought I had a lot better chance uh, helping the team out when I pitched more. Now, in July of '85, you have a similar situation to your uh, Philadelphia ten inning shutout. You're uh, you're called upon last minute to sub in for a, a six Sid Fernandez against the San Francisco Giants, who aren't a great team, but. You know, regardless, it's a major league team, and you're not prepared mentally for the game. Uh, and you go on to pitch a, a shutout. You know, talk a little bit uh, about that time. That well, that was quite a surprise. I was supposed to start the next day uh, against San Diego, that was coming into town, and I had already done all of my, you know, running and exercises. I used to do a lot of push-ups and sit-ups and a good bit of running the day before, and I had done my throwing and. Everything was done. I was in the clubhouse. I was, uh, I had already cleaned up. I just, uh, I had not dressed in my uniform yet. I was sitting in my locker doing a crossword puzzle. And they come running in about 10 minutes before the game telling me Sid's sick. He's dizzy. Uh, they can't let him go out there and I'm going to have to pitch. So it's just like being a reliever from the very beginning right here. So I'll, I'm trying to get dressed. I'm like putting my underwear on my head and my hat on my shoe. And on my feet, and I, I'm hurrying and hurrying and hurrying. I go running out there. I'm in a little bit of a disarray, but I get out. I warm up. It doesn't take me about two or three minutes, and I was ready to go. Um, I go out to pitch the game. I get started. I feel very good. The ball's moving good. My slider's working good. Every, everything's down. Before I know it, I have gone through the game. I've pitched all nine innings. I've only thrown, I think, 87 pitches for a nine-inning game. I have just been on top of everything the whole night, and it it was just unbelievable. It's like I didn't even have to think out there. Everything was just working right. And as we're walking off the field, uh, Ray Knight was the third baseman at that time. He walks off by me and he, or comes up to congratulate me right after the game, and he tells me, he says, Terry, I just want you to know that was the best pitched game I have ever seen. And that just, that really, that stood me up. I just backed me up right there when he said something like that. And it just made it even a, a better moment for me. Now, when I've had other of your former teammates from the 80s, Danny Heath, Gary Carter, 
uh, Dal Strawberry on the show. You know, they've, they've talked about their 86 moment, and, and, you know, obviously a lot of them go back to the World Series, Game 6. But, you know, in line with the book, yours is a little less orthodox. And you talk about, you know, in, you get hurt late season in AAA, uh, costs you a call-up, you're not on the bench for any of the postseason. But then the funny part is, 10 years later, you're involved in, I guess, a mini-controversy where you're looking to get your ring because you put some time in throughout the season. And with the help, I believe, of Randy Myers, you wind up getting your ring. Um, why don't you talk about that? Because that's what stood out to me of your 86 moment. Well, that's right. That we, we, we'd always wondered about that. There was two or three of us that we had been on the team, and we were up there and we were part of it. Uh, like I, said, I came up at the beginning of the season uh, when Ed Lynch had gotten hurt. And I took his place within the first five days, and I stayed four months. Didn't get to pitch much. I, I, I threw seven innings, I think it was. Only gave up one run, but just wasn't getting an opportunity to pitch. Well, about that time, whoever else was injured, uh, they brought them back up, reinstated them, so I had to go back down to Triple A. Well, I go down to Tidewater, and I'm just pitching outstanding. I'm just having a great year. Uh, everything's just working, and, and I'm going through it. And we're coming down to the playoffs. Or, or trying to make it to playoffs. And we needed to beat the uh, Richmond Braves one out of the last two games to make it to the Governor's Cup playoff. So I told, uh, well, I didn't tell. Actually, uh, the manager came to me and asked me if I would pitch that game, if I would start that game for him. And I said, sure, it's, it's no no problem. Sammy Palazzo was the manager at that time. And I said, sure, Sammy, I'd, I'd be happy to do it. So I went out and I, I pitched the first couple of innings and I, I think I hadn't put thrown but, uh, 12, 13, 14 pitches maybe total of both innings. I was just, just having a great day. Sinker was working, getting ground balls, had one strikeout in each inning. Everything was just flying by. And I came up, had to get my first at bat of the year. And, um, you know, you're, you're second to the last game of the season, you're getting your first at bat and I, I, I got a walk. You know, I, I must have looked like I could hit or something. So I got a walk, and I'm on first base with two outs. And then Stanley Jefferson hits one in the right center field gap, and I take off running. And I'm anticipating going to pull up into third base. But Sammy had his arms rolling, and he had me scoring from third. Well, it wouldn't have been so bad if I had been kind of prepared for that, but I, I didn't make a real good turn around third base. It was like I was high-fiving everybody in the, the opposing dugout as I ran by because my circle was out that wide. And it was taking me forever to get to home plate. And I knew the, the uh, throw was coming into home from right field. And I could see the catcher getting ready to, to make a play on it. And I'm thinking, I'm going to slide into him and he's going to break my leg. So I said, I've got to do something a little different. I said, I'll just kind of dive off to the side here, you know, head first and, and just graze the, the plate with my hand as I go by. I don't know exactly what happened, but as soon as I got there, I hit, I dove, I went straight up in the air, I ended up, Flipping totally over the catcher. Catcher turned to tag me, and I wasn't even there. Went over him, hit the home plate, turned the somersault, landed in the dirt, all dust lying. I'm safe. It's good. I've scored a run. All right, that's great. But the only problem was I landed on my shoulder and separated my shoulder. So then they take me to the doctor, and we're standing there, and they've got a weight in my hand, uh, pulling it down, taking an X-ray to, to see how big a gap it is. And as the doctor's talking to me, he says, oh, Terry, I hear you're supposed to go back up to New York tomorrow. And I said, oh, my Lord, don't tell me that. Because <laughs> then I had no no way of being able to get to go again. So that's what happened to my uh, chance of getting to be in the World Series, which I thought might be my only chance. I ended up separating my shoulder. And because I couldn't play or, or do anything, I did not get to go back up for the last month. And I did not get to participate excuse me, in any of the... Um, Pre, uh, postseason games or going to the World Series or anything like that. But uh, I did get to watch them on TV at home, and that was a great thrill to watch. You know, ten years later, you guys wind up uh, getting your rings. How did that feel, you know, getting your World Series well, ring? Well, yeah, now what happened with that was, um, even though I had been there almost, well, I was there for almost eight a years. month of the season, yeah. and I would have been there for two months if I would gotten to go back and not been hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... About 10 years later, myself and Randy Myers didn't get one either, and neither did Barry Lyons, even though they had all been up there for a while. And at this time, Randy was playing for the Chicago Cubs, and he's in the in the bullpen at Shea Stadium, and they put up um, 
uh, the question, you know, trivia question up on there said, who is the Met player that only pitched in one inning and received um, a, a ring for the World Series in 1986? Well, it just so happened that Ed Lynch was the general manager of the Cubs at that time, so that's why it came up. So when Randy read that, that Ed had only pitched one inning but got a ring, that just set him on fire. Randy Randy could get uh, a little Ramboish, you know. He'd go in hard. So he went up to the head office the next day and talked to the to, – I don't know exactly who he talked to up there, but I know he talked for a while. And he even offered to pay to have rings for for the three of us and, and Dave Magadan also, I believe. Um, it, you know, he, he talked about he would make the payments on it if they would produce them again. And from what I understand, uh, the Mets finally realized, you know, this, you know, Mike should have been changed. We, they should have had it. So it ended up 10 years after. I'm sitting at home one day and a special delivery comes and I open it up and it's, a, and it's my Mets World Series ring from that year. And that was, that was a, like, like Christmas in the, in the middle of the year. It was outstanding. You know, 1987 is probably what most fans remember you for. Uh, it was a strange year. The Mets lose about seven pitchers to injury, including Doc Gooden. They're coming off a world championship season, didn't get off such a great start, and then it ended uh, in a disappointing fashion, you know, falling just short to the Cardinals. But, you know, you did your part. You probably kept the team in the race when you think about it. You were 11-0 and going into August. And, uh, you know, looking back, you know, what do you remember about that? And, and is that the best ball you may have pitched in your career? Well, it was like I was telling you about. I had a couple of years there that everything I did was just effortless and it just worked. I just relaxed and let it go and everything was good. And at that point, yes, I was pitching very well. I was going out. I had good movement on the ball. I had a, a nice slider working. I had, you know, fantastic players with me. And I'll, I didn't worry about anything. I said, I'm going to... My theory is to let them hit it. I'm not trying to strike them out. I want them to hit it. I want to throw three pitches every inning and get three outs. I want my guys to make plays, throw them out, and let's go down, go inside, and let, let our team hit a little bit. But that, it was it was great. I just kept going, and the only thing that really slowed me up there was I had been hit in the knee during the year by a line drive. And I think with all the extra stress of all the extra starting that I'd done, uh, or extra innings that I had put in, it tore the cartilage and all on the inside part of my right knee. And it got to where I could not drive and push off with my right leg. And it's like the old theory says, when, when a pitcher loses his legs, he loses his arm. And that's exactly right, because you, you produce all your power with your legs. And if your arm has to try to take over everything, it just gets tired and worn out and things just don't work. So after about um, 10 games, I was I was starting to feel the effects of this. I'd been getting taped up every every game for several for a month or so, from my ankle all the way up to my thigh, just to try to stabilize the knee. But it got to where I couldn't push anymore. I just couldn't do it. And uh, my fastball was down to a low 70. And when a lady in Chicago, I was warming up, and the lady sitting there beside the bullpen says, "This guy pitches in the big leagues." I kind of put some serious doubt in my mind right then, <laughs> and. I went on and pitched, and I ended up losing the game. And as soon as I lost the game, Davey took me out of the rotation and uh, let me go on a two-week um, disabled list so that um, my knee could heal up a little bit. And then when it got stronger, he told me, I'm going to put you back in relief. Um, I'm not going to throw you in a game. I mean, I'm not going to warm you up unless I'm going to throw you. And, and any other day, do not throw any more. So he still was able to use me, but I, 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 he didn't let me wear out my legs, so I stayed strong and my arms stayed stronger. And, and I ended up winning one more game, so I did end up 11-1 and one that year, and it was, it was quite, an, uh, quite an experience. Now, when you look back uh, at the Mets during the 80s, and we've had this discussion, uh, you know, last year they did the 20-year celebration, the 86 team, and, and now, you know, with the Mets kind of returned to prominence, you know, there's always been talk about the 80s, and and why didn't, you know, that team win more? And I want to hear from you. You know, you played for the 88 team, which I thought in some ways might be better than 86. You played a little bit in 89 right before the uh, it took a turn for the worst. And some people feel it might be, you know, the team wasn't hungry enough. There was some, you know, off-the-field problems, you know, specifically with Doc and Darrell. 
Um, you know, why do you think that team didn't win as much as people think it should have from you know the '84 to '90 season? Well, you know, I I'm not I'm not sure. You got to think about it. While Davey was there, he was averaging 95 wins a year. Most of the time, that's enough to to get you to the World Series. Um, unfortunately, there would be some other team that just happened to get hot at one time. Like in 87, um, we go and, uh, getting, get trying to play, who was it, playing the Dodgers. We'd beat, we'd beat the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. This might have been in 88. We'd beat the Dodgers, yeah. uh, 10 out of 11 games that mm-hmm. year. But we go and run into them in the playoffs and they, they end up beating us. They got hot at the right time. Um, you know, they. I think there were some changes made. You know, they started dealing some players out for. I, you know, I don't know all the reasons that go on behind the scene. I was always pretty much just to myself. But it, they started just kind of taking away from it. The, the team had a definite personality and a character. And when they were all together, everything worked very, very well. Um, I know in the '87 year, right at the beginning of the year, we were not doing very well. And we had kind of a little team meeting with some of the players. We're all sitting around talking about trying to figure out, you know, what's going on here. You know, let's let, let's tighten it up, whatever. And Daryl Strawberry says, he says, you know what we're missing? And everybody says, what, what, what's that? He says, Ray Knight. Mm. Because Ray had not been renewed, and Ray was a serious fire for everybody. He was always ready to go. Beginning of the game, he shook your hand. He looked you right in the eye. Are you ready to go? Are you ready? And people were, yeah, let's go, let's go. They'd pump them up. They'd get ready. So every day they were going out there playing as hard as they can. And you miss people like that. And as, it, as the personalities start changing and new people get brought in, it kind of waters it down a little bit. The team that you played for and your actual time you played in the World Series was with the 1991 Minnesota Twins. And I know, you know, when, when New York fans look back, you know, the 91 Twins probably doesn't stand out of them outside of Kirby Puckett. Uh, maybe Rick Aguilera who played here, but that was a pretty good team, and you played in probably, in my time, one of the best World Series games ever. You you didn't play, but you watched it with the 10-inning Jack Morris one nothing game. You know, talk about that team, and is that the best team that you played on throughout your career? Well, I tell you what, that was a very, very good team. I got with the Twins in 1990, and I did not, you know, know a whole lot about them. Like you said, they, they didn't have a whole lot of marquee names. You had uh, Kirby Puckett. And Kent Herbeck at that time. You had Dan Gladden was there. Um, so I got in there and I'm playing with them and we're, we're not doing so well. In fact, we come in last place. And I'm sitting there in the bullpen one night and I'm looking. I said, I don't get it. I said, this is the best worst place team I have ever seen. I said, I, I don't understand this. I said, these guys can play. Tom Kelly, the manager, had a way of making you into a unit. Nobody was better than anybody else, and everybody played together. And it was a very unified team. And we went on the next year. Like I said, we picked up Jack Morris. Uh, Scott Erickson kicked in as a great pitcher. Uh, Kevin Tappany was there with us, and he he was doing great. All of a sudden now, everything starts rolling together. Uh, we had a reliever with, with Carl Willis and uh, Steve Bedrosian that – doing fantastic jobs, and then you had the closer in Rick Aguilera. So just a little combination of adding just a little bit more pitching just really turned that team around. At one point, we took off on a 15-game win streak where we went from, like, fifth place up to first, and then from then on, we just kept rolling. But that was another season where right at the beginning of the year, we started out very slow, had a little bit of a team meeting, kind of got unified, and then after that, everything started rolling. But uh, – one of the great things about that team, like I said, the personality, nobody being better than the other, there was definitely one guy on the team that was way better than most people, and that was Kirby Puckett. But you couldn't tell him that, and he wouldn't listen to you about it. He said, everybody's got their own job. Let's do their job. So when everybody would just try to emulate Puck and go as, and go as hard as we can. But I can tell you that when we got down to the sixth game of the uh, World Series, and we we were down three to two, um, three games to two. Puck walked into the to the clubhouse right at the end, right before we were about to go out for the game. He said, "Okay, boys, just jump on my back. We're gonna, I'm going to carry you now." And that was the game that he hit that extra inning home run to end the game. Uh, Puck was the best baseball player I ever played with.
Wow, wow! And then the next night with the ten inning one nothing Jack Morris game. That's a, I knew Jack didn't, Morris. I didn't know you. Pl- I know you don't play. Didn't play in that game. But was that the the best game that you were involved in as a major league? Let leaguer? me tell you what. That was some kind. You talk about being on edge the whole night. Everybody. I mean, it's zero zero all the time. It's the seventh game of the World Series. The the stadium in Minnesota is just jammed, and it is some kind of noisy. We're sitting there, and we can't even hear the phone ring in the in the bullpen if they want somebody else uh, to get up. What we had to do is our uh, the bullpen coach had to keep his hand or foot on the phone so he could feel it vibrate uh, because we could not hear anything down there. So we're going this whole game, and Jack's just got it working. We called him the Iron Horse, and there's a reason for that. Jack did not like to come out of games. He wanted to stay. he wanted to get out there and he wanted to finish it. And I love that about him. I thought he was great at that. So we go on, we go on through the game. We get to the ninth inning. Tom Kelly has a rule, a basic rule of when a pitcher does his nine innings, he's done. He's done his job. Now it's time for somebody else to come in and take up on. We're all sitting in the bullpen saying, "Ah, <laughs> we can't do nothing but mess this one up. Come on now." So, but Jack is talking to him, and he's he's yelling and screaming in the dugout, and um, he finally talked TK into letting him stay in there one more inning at least. So he goes back out, he pitches that tenth inning. We come back in, we get a man on base. Gene Larkin uh, gets a little hit, drives him home. We win, the place goes nuts. And I tell you what, that was a great effort, and that was that absolutely was one of the best games. And I tell you what, even though. It, it was the Braves and it was the Twins, even though at that time they weren't large market teams, you know, for things going on. But that was an outstanding series from the from the get go. Yeah, after 1993, you, you, you know, you bounced around a little bit. You, your arm injury um, ended your career, and I want to know now. You look back, you see guys, and I'll give you an example like uh, Chad Bradford, who's I guess kind of a similar pitcher to what you were in some ways. You know, he's getting three-year, nine million dollar contracts. Does it? Does that make you wonder, geez, I was born in the wrong era or I played in the wrong era? And, and maybe for a while it made you think, you know, you see Julio Franco out there almost 50 years old playing. Do you want to get back in there at all? Oh, absolutely. I'll go, I'll go tomorrow if they call me. My uh, CPA down here keeps telling me he's going to get me in shape and take me back up there. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I was, I was uh, unfortunately, I say I was born old. It was my, was my fault. Um, I was not a rookie when everybody else was a rookie. When rookies, you know, kids are 19, 20, 21 as rookies, I was a 27-year-old rookie. So I kind of lost some time there. So I didn't have the chance to really be important, I don't think, that, you know, they had other people that they would rather spend their money on and that, they, you know, if you're already 27, you don't know how long you're going to last or anything. So I just never got that chance to make a whole lot of money. I think if I could have been come up when I was 21 or 2 and had the kind of seasons I had, I think I would have would have made much better money. But the money nowadays, yeah, that makes you wish you were playing right now. I, minimum wage sounds good to me. <laughs> what do you, before I let you go, what do you miss most about the game? I miss hanging out with the guys and, like I said, going to the ballpark and and sitting there in the bullpen with all the guys and talking. Uh, most teams I was on, we always did crossword puzzles. We do two or three crossword puzzles. By the time it was fourth inning, we would we would order food in and have uh, food and you know sitting around laughing, uh, always watching the game. But we were always enjoying ourselves. And then after the game, we'd go out and maybe have a social sparkler together and talk and laugh and cut up. It was just fun to be with the people. They were good people. I was uh, like I said, I was very blessed in that I always had people around me that were quality people. They, everybody I hung around with, they were, they were people that I, I was proud to go and be with them. So it, it was, it was a fun, fun thing and I miss not being able to be around them anymore. Well Terry, thanks a lot for taking some time with us and I could speak to Mets fans saying that you are remembered and that uh, they really appreciate your time with the club. Well, I appreciate you calling, and thank you very much. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show.
All right, we're back. Final thoughts. Great stuff. I really haven't listened to that interview in a long time. I, I recorded that in late 2007, the summer of 2007. We all know what happened in the fall that year. And Terry was great. He was very personable. I mean, thinking about it, Pete Rose was one of the players that said he was one of the top five toughest pitchers to face. Hearing some of his stories with the Mets, going through the minor leagues, I thought he gave us a really good feel of growing up as uh, as he says. It's, the book is called Things Happen for a Reason, the true story of an itinerant life in uh, baseball. And he just bounced around. He kept fighting. He didn't quit. Uh, he adapted. He learned how to pitch after he lost uh, through an injury. He lost his fastball, so he goes into this kind of sidearm motion. And uh, Terry had a, a nice little short, but a nice little run with the Mets. He was a big part of '87. He had some, uh, you know, valuable innings as a reliever, middle reliever in 1988. And then he moved on, and he was part of a Twins team that uh, made history as he won a World Series with them. So. Good stuff. Hope you enjoyed that throwback. That's one of the better throwbacks. Long interview. Lasted well over 40 minutes. And I figured it would take your mind off of things. And it really got me feeling the juices of wanting to get back into this, wanting to get back into baseball. And I know I said in the open that I I think it's best to scrap the season if they don't do one, two, and three and all that stuff. But I hope that there's a way to get it back. I just want it back where it's not carnival. I think just to, to make myself clear. Because when you hear these interviews, when you start to listen to what you know, these old throwbacks and think about the game and watch some of these old games that I'm sure you're watching on SNY or maybe uh, other places on YouTube. You want it back. You want to get back into it. I mean, here it is, it's Mother's Day, and there's no baseball. And it's it's almost like, I mean, the weather yesterday was like December. And it's almost like it's the off season. It's the never-ending off season. It seems like uh, so long ago that Dom Smith hit the walk-off and you figured, all right, Mets fell short, but... You know, let's get at the offseason. Let's get this team back together. And now there's so many questions about what kind of season we'll have and what these players will look like and what shape they'll look like and, and how you can really put this thing all together if there's a way to put it all together. And the clock's ticking because if you're going to have a season that starts somewhere between July 1st and July 15th, you've got about 30 days to figure it out because I think the, the report has been June 10th is when uh, you would have to report to spring training if you want to get something going along those lines. And I don't I don't want them to rush it. And I know 1995, they reported to spring in April, and they were able to get themselves going in about three weeks. But, you know, again, uh, it's a different game now. It's much more, uh, you know, pitchers are a, a, a more expensive commodity. And I know that they're highly uh, grown up on, on, on highly structured routines and I think that that could play into some real bad injuries, arm injuries, and change careers if we don't do this responsibly. So anyway, I uh, want to thank, I know it's 13 years later, want to thank Terry Leach for joining me on the show today. Things happen for a reason. The true story of an itinerant life in baseball. Check it out. Great book if you should be able to catch it somewhere, wherever books are sold. Of course, I want to thank all of you. And if you want to listen to the show, you can check it out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, also iHeartRadio. You can... Tweet me at Mike Silva Media. And of course, you could send me an email, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week and be healthy, be safe. We'll be back with another podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody.
Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.